Hello, everybody. Welcome to Theory Lab. Thanks for listening to the American Cancer Society's Research Podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, here with my friend, Dr. Susanna Greer. Today, you're going to hear from a nurse, a cancer scientist, a physician, a cancer survivor, and an author. Not all in one person. It's actually two different people, Dr. Terry Badger and Dr. Beverly Zavaleta. Uh, First, you're going to hear from Dr. Terry Badger. She's an American Cancer Society grantee at the University of Arizona. She is an advanced practice psychiatric mental health nurse. She's also professor of nursing, psychiatry, and public health, and she's the chair of the Community and Systems Health, Health Science Division there. What a timely conversation, don't you think, Dr. Greer, um, to speak with a nurse and a cancer researcher whose specialty is the psychological distress that cancer patients and caregivers have to deal with. I mean, people are feeling a lot of psychological distress now, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. This conversation was the perfect one for us to have right now because the thing that Terry shares with us is that Psychological distress is normal. It affects everyone, and she gives us some fantastic coping strategies um, around self-care and the opportunity to join her study. Um, and I, I think you're going to love hearing about it. So let's listen to Terry. Hi, Terry. How are you? Well, I'm doing very well. I'm, you know, like everybody else, I'm staying at home, following the guidelines, washing my hands a lot and keeping my distance. And I'm really spending a lot of time on the telephone and using video chatting to uh, stay connected to other people. Yeah, these are truly unprecedented times. One of the great things about a podcast, though, is that we still have the opportunity to chat. So we're really grateful that you're going to share a little time with us, and I'm excited to learn more. So if it's okay with you, we'll dive in. Sounds like a plan. All right. So I've done my homework. I've read a lot about you. And one of the things that I have found so interesting about your research is that you have made just some enormous contributions to how we understand the psychological distress that's associated with cancer and its treatment. This is a big area, and you really have done a tremendous amount. But I was hoping that we could just start by you level setting uh, with our audience. Um, Are there some highlights that you can share? Well, first of all, I'm hopeful that uh, what uh, my research has contributed uh, so that people understand that psychological distress is very normal and affects about a third of cancer patients and their caregivers. And so now what we've added is, of course, the pandemic, which is equally stressful and affects everyone. And we found that you can cope with cancer and many of the symptoms of cancer and cancer treatment by practicing some just basic self-care strategies. I mean, certainly, depending on where you are in your cancer journey, you may have to adjust your routine to allow time for healing, but you really need to set up your schedule so that you have time to work and play and you need to keep physically active by walking or exercising because it's good for our physical and mental health. And it is a recommended self-care strategy for so many cancer symptoms, not just psychological distress. We all need to get enough sleep. Uh, It's very important for your mood and health. We need to eat healthy, particularly right now because many of us are stress eating. 
and certainly will end up gaining weight, which we'll have to worry about taking off when, when the pandemic is over. And so it's best to, you know, watch your weight and not buy high-caloric snack foods and closing your kitchen, as I call it, after your evening meal. But most importantly, you need to spend time with the people you love and like and be creative in the ways that you keep in touch. I mean, now's the time where we can practice virtual get-togethers. Have a, I attended a virtual party not too long ago. We have our book clubs and support groups, our church services, and the list goes on. And I think every day in the news there's some new and interesting way that people have found to stay connected. Now, if your psychological distress persists, I would also urge you to seek help from a healthcare provider who may suggest medications or a therapy that is more intensive. I, I want to dive a little deeper into that because you've had some really interesting leadership in kind of that next step intervention around specifically using phone calls, telephone calls, um, as a form of supportive care. So could you share a little bit more about that strategy? Well, first of all, I'm an advanced practice psychiatric mental health nurse, and um, I decided I wanted to design something that would provide cancer education for symptom management and counseling for psychological distress that would allow people to get the help they need. And I figured, you know, through my clinical work, because cancer patients were and their caregivers would tell me that they did not have transportation or they did not feel well enough to come into the clinic or they couldn't take off work or there were no support groups in the area, and I listened to them. And so these are all barriers to obtaining care, so I decided to design a research study where we removed the barriers. I decided to embrace the telehealth movement, and since everybody pretty much knows how to talk on the telephone, I figured that was the easiest way to go. Of course, when I started this work, we didn't have quite the technology we have now. So I'm testing interventions delivered over the telephone in English or in Spanish to determine if these interventions are helpful to cancer patients and their caregivers. It's really a simple idea. If a cancer patient or caregiver has psychological distress or suffers from all the other types of symptoms that cancer patients have, we send them our symptom management handbook, we call them on the telephone once a week, assess their symptoms, and we recommend strategies for self-care. So far, we found this way of delivering supportive care extremely useful, and most everybody says that it, they're very satisfying with receiving supportive care this way. Now, some of the, sometimes it's the most simplest ideas that can be the most impactful. And it, it's really great to hear that your patients are finding this useful. They're finding it a satisfying way to receive care because we might not have assumed that about a conversation over the phone. I think that much of what you have learned or are learning is especially applicable now during the pandemic as we think about ways to virtually support cancer patients. Um, are there things that you could share with us, best practices um, that you've learned? Well, although I had no idea when I developed this uh, intervention, a pandemic was coming, I think this form of support is ideal. And I also think it gives us pause to think about how in the future, once the pandemic is over, maybe we should do more of this type of intervention. 
because we are finding it is effective and we are finding that patients really like how easy it is to access. So I really am recommending that in the future when we want to provide our patients uh, supportive care, we call our patients or we use telehealth, uh, we can call the patients and the caregivers and provide the support over the telephone. We don't need face-to-face -face contact to be supportive and stay connected. And more importantly, we're not putting our cancer um, patients at risk because even before the pandemic, we always had to worry about exposing our cancer patients while they're in treatment to, uh, you know, bacteria or bugs or colds or flu. And so certainly um, this avoids all of that because we're talking over the phone. And I really think we can use this form of support to help our patients cope with the psychological distress of almost actually any disease. And so my staff now are telling me that um, the pandemic, of course, is being talked about a lot in the counseling sessions. And we certainly adapt as well, where we're talking about and helping them figure out ways to obtain medication, groceries. We talk about wearing masks. We refer them to a website so they uh, learn how to make masks for themselves. You know, it's so interesting that in almost every situation in life, there's a silver lining. I mean, who would have thought you're, you're exactly right? You, you had no idea when you were designing this intervention that you'd be in the middle of a pandemic and we'd all be using different aspects of virtual technology. But it's really uh, quite refreshing that, that all of the things that happen when you talk to someone over the phone for, and especially for a cancer patient where you are reducing barriers, able to contact more individuals, more cancer patients, you are certainly decreasing their risk and their exposures. And I mean, the best thing you've said is you're increasing their capability to cope. All of those things, you are exactly right, are true now, but they're, they're evergreen. They will be true when the pandemic is over. So I'm excited about the opportunity that you and your team will have to expand this um, and for others to learn from this space where you've shown great leadership. So I think that's just fantastic. Well, thank you. I mean, I think so. I think we're, you know, this is, this is an opportunity for us to rethink how we can support our cancer patients um, and to use novel ways of, of delivering health care to our patients and their caregivers. Yeah, we're, we're, learning, we're learning all the time. And I think it's refreshing for the cancer community to understand that there is good coming from this situation and there will be changes in the way that we practice medicine and we support them. And there will be really good things that come from what has been an incredibly challenging situation. So thank you for the role that you're playing in that. Um, I have a question about uh, the American Cancer Society in, in particular, because I know the ACS You've received a tremendous amount of funding from lots of different agencies, but the ACS has been a part of that. Are there ways specifically the American Cancer Society has impacted your research? Well, I have to say I have a soft spot in my heart for the American Cancer Society, and they have funded my research. And they funded uh, my research at a time, actually, when telephone support interventions were not as popular or even people thought that they would work. And the American Cancer Society were, were a front runner. They, were, they actually were much more forward thinking. And they said, you know, this is something that uh, 
we need to look at because it does remove many barriers for patient care. So um, they certainly have funded my research and I've, I give them total credit for enabling me to add to the psychosocial oncology science. Um, they are an organization that believes in meeting the physical and mental health needs of patients and their families and I'm extremely proud to say that I'm an American Cancer Society researcher. Oh, we appreciate that, and we absolutely believe in you and are really excited to have you as a part of our community. All right, I just have one last question, and it's honestly, it's the most important one I need to ask you today. There has been so much um, said about caretakers, medical workers, in the space of the pandemic and as a nurse you're really you're really on the front lines now and always i i wonder if there is a message you would like to share with our listeners who are cancer patients who are survivors and caregivers because this is a community that is always in need and i think now more than ever and honestly i think you're the best person to really share a message with them well, my message usually to folks, regardless of what role they play in, in whether one is a survivor or a family member or a, a, a more formal caregiver, is be your best, your own best advocate. I mean, think about it. Be your own best advocate. Ask about what type of supportive care is available for you and f your family. Uh, many organizations, such as the American Cancer Society, have websites and telephone helplines to obtain science based information, and that's what's really important is to make sure that the, the uh, places where you're getting your information is accurate, that it's based on science, so that you can make the correct decisions for yourself. But I do think that it's, it's very simple. Be your own advocate and ask for what you need. Well, Terry, that's a fantastic message. and. With that, I'll just say thank you. We're grateful for you and all you've done, and stay safe. Okay. Well, I could also say I could be my own advocate and give you my toll-free number for my research. That would be amazing. We'd love to hear it, and, and we'll share it in our show notes as well. But please, go ahead. Okay. Um, I continue to have research where I can help uh, survivors and, and uh, caregivers uh, manage their symptoms. And I'd like, if you're interested in participating or think you would like to participate in our research, our toll-free number is 1-866-218-6641. All right. Thank you, Terry. Take Thank care now. Thank you. It was fun. Okay, that was Dr. Terry Badger. And now you're going to hear Susanna's conversation with Dr. Beverly Savaletta. She is a physician. She's also a cancer survivor and an author. We spoke with her about her cancer experience and about her book, Braving Chemo. Hey, Beverly. Thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We are excited to hear all you have to share today. Um, I want to level set with our audience a little bit. So we've already shared that you are a physician and you're a cancer survivor and an author. Um, tell us tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? What's your daily life? So I am a board certified family physician. I trained in San Antonio and I practiced for many, many years in private practice and then um, 
as part of a larger hospital system here in Brownsville, Texas as well. And then for the last several years, I've been practicing hospital medicine and also doing some consulting and now writing with uh, the book that I just recently published, which is uh, called Braving Chemo. All right. So you were able to publish Braving Chemo because you have experienced chemotherapy. So let's talk a little bit about about the fact that you are a cancer survivor. Um, would you would you be willing to tell us a little bit about your cancer experience, something that maybe stands out? Sure. So I was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer in 2015. And that is a fairly aggressive form of breast cancer. It affects approximately 15 to 20% of breast cancer patients. And I think I think my experience, to be quite honest, was pretty typical um, in the sense that uh, life pretty much, regular life pretty much comes to a stop when you get a, a cancer diagnosis like that. It's just like having a wrench thrown into the gears. And um, I completely focused on treatment because I was a hospitalist already by that point, I, I could not work because of, I would be exposed to lots of infections and diseases in the hospital. So everything was on hold and I just had to throw myself into treatment, which I honestly think is, is pretty, is actually a typical experience uh, for, for many, many people. Oh, you're right. I, I, I love that analogy that cancer throws a wrench in the gears. It absolutely does and can bring everything else to a standstill. Um, so in that way, you're right. I think your experience was, unfortunately, pretty typical for a lot of cancer patients. One thing, though, that is atypical about your experience is that you are a, or, or have been a family physician, and as you said, or, or have been also a hospitalist. So does that change the patient experience um, when you're a clinician patient? Um, from what maybe someone who doesn't have that medical background. I am really glad that you bring that up because it is something that I, I realized it, it, it did and it does. Um, and uh, actually today, in fact, I was doing a career fair at, at the school of my niece and nephew. And I actually referred to myself as a super nerd and I, I know that I'm in, in good company here because um, you interview a lot of brilliant people for this show. And I think that that can be a double-edged sword when you are facing a cancer diagnosis. I, for me, on the one hand, I was able to deal with some things as just routine. I, I could take care of some of the side effects because I already knew what they were and I understood the medications and it was no big deal. Um, but other things, I think I could easily go down a rabbit hole of, of obsessing and doing too much research and kind of getting myself caught up in the worst case scenario. And um, that could kind of get away from me. A little bit, so that I felt like that I, I had to I had to kind of manage that scientist side of me 
I had to be on the lookout to not let that run wild. It's an interesting perspective. I, I think that probably a lot of cancer patients have that kind of tendency to go down that rabbit hole in common, what, no matter where your starting point is, right? Your starting point was different because, as you said, you're self, <laughs> self-labeled super nerd. So you know a lot of things about your diagnosis and treatments and medications. But we all have a tendency, just because we're human, to think about, you know, what are kind of the worst case scenarios that could happen and, and all of those um, really scary parts of being a cancer patient. So I guess I'd, I'd want to know, are there lessons that you learned that maybe we can all apply as we are traveling down that cancer journey and trying to prevent ourselves from being in a negative space and trying to be as realistic and positive as possible? Yes, I, I definitely, I definitely learned a lot. And, and I certainly didn't want to say that people should not um, research. In fact, uh, in fact, the opposite. I would say that the most important takeaway lessons would be to ask questions, uh, ask questions of your doctor, of your care team, stay in communication. That would be number one. Number two, listen to your body. Pay attention to your body, which I, I see that as communicating with yourself. And then number three is to let go of expectations, which is easier said, easier said than done, but that will help to alleviate a lot of guilt. I, I love the first two points that you raised, that communication is so important, not only with the folks that are on your care team, um, and I would probably loop into that, your, your care, your family and friends and the professionals who are part of that team, but also uh, really maintaining a strong line of communication internally as well. That internal dialogue is pretty strong. Um, could we dive a little bit into that last point? But tell us a little bit more about those expectations and letting go. Why is that so important? So there are a lot of expectations that a person can have for themselves and also that the culture at large can 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 put on you or that you feel that it does. So for example, um, if you are somebody who is always very in charge of things, say that you, you know, you're the person that runs your household and you, you know, you keep track of the bills and you're the one that you keep track of the bills, you walk the dogs, you have a job, maybe you're in charge of if you have children. And then all of a sudden you're the you're the sick person. You're you're not able to do all those things. You might feel like, oh, I'm gonna keep track of all my appointments and I'm gonna drive myself to treatment and you you may try to overlay that same method on your treatment and you may not be able to you're going to need to ask for help or maybe some days you can some days you can't so it will be easier if you let go of expectations and just be open to see things as they are and accept things as they are which isn't to say that you don't have goals and this is where it's very tr- the language is kind of tricky it doesn't mean that you can't say, you know, today I would like to be able to help make dinner because mm-hmm. that would help me feel more, more normal. That's a goal. But if it doesn't happen, 
it's helpful to just let go of it <laughs> and say it didn't happen and that's okay. Instead of beating yourself up about it and feeling guilty or feeling somehow that you have failed cancer treatment because you're not, you know, you're not recovering fast enough um, or, or whatever other set of expectations. Hmm. You know, it's so interesting to me. So many things about the cancer experience are, they seem to be on the outside of this bubble that until we experience cancer, they just don't come into focus. And then all of a sudden the lens changes because quite frankly, if all of us got up every day and just said, you know what? Yesterday happened. Let's just see how today goes. We'd be in a much better place. So all of these things happened to you and you had all of these life experiences and this really significant cancer experience. So can you help us to understand, um, why did why did you write this book? Why did you write Braving Chemo? So let's maybe first talk about what was your motivation? So the the concrete motivation came from a friend of mine whose sister also had cancer during the time that I did. She was diagnosed a month or two after and, and was a little bit behind me, therefore, in her treatments, but was also going through chemo again, a, a little bit behind me, but at the same time, and her family reached out to me. Um, she had a lot of questions, and she was having some difficulty with side effects, so I was giving them resources, tips, suggestions, and, and they live far away, so it wasn't in person. It was over email, text, phone conversations, so I, I was a support person for them. Again, not as a physician, really, because I was not guiding them on treatment decisions, but helping them navigate mostly the side effects, physical side effects, but also some of the emotional and mental side effects. So this friend of mine really encouraged me. Well, she said, you know, you have all of this guidance and these notes and emails, you should write a book. So that's how it happened. I do feel that it's a solid resource for any patient who is going to have chemotherapy or is having chemotherapy, it's a resource for caregivers, for family and friends of uh, uh, loved ones of somebody who's having chemotherapy. People, patients and caregivers often don't get what they need at the oncologist office because the teaching happens, again, and I went through this, you, you sit down with a nurse for an hour, hour and a half, and you get a class about chemo, but it kind of goes by pretty quickly. And then eight weeks later, you're still having chemo, but you've got tons of more questions. And now that the side effects are hitting you, you're like, wait a minute, what was I supposed to do? And you're looking for your handout and, and you're too tired to search online. And so I feel that this is a resource that somebody can easily have in their bag, or if their friend gives it to them as a gift, they can have it on the shelf until they need it. And then they can just open it up to the little section that they need. We're so grateful for you, for your survival, um, and for your putting something really good out there into the world from your cancer experience. So thank you, Beverly. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate all the great work that the American Cancer Society does. So it was a pleasure to be here.